while police photographing our license plate. What are we doing for veterans returning home damaged physically and mentally, suffering from depression, homelessness, and suicide? Why did the Supreme Court deposit corporate money into our electoral process? Should we redefine middle class as working poor? Or is it just another Wall Street merger? What's really behind new voter picture ID laws in certain states? Why aren't NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox asking these questions? Welcome to the Reasonable Voice radio show. I'm your host, Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice. The mission of the Reasonable Voice is to connect the dots between politics and finance, the need for better and more affordable education, our humanity, world peace, and, of course, the arts, which we then gladly provide our listeners, the voting public, as informative food for thought to provoke their self-determination and appetite for equal economic opportunity and justice for all without truth decay. The Reasonable Voices are advocates prioritizing education, preserving our history, leading by example for a peaceful and prosperous world by evoking and embracing both creative artists and political unity as solutions to our challenges. Good afternoon. This is the Reasonable Voices talk radio show, and I'm your host, Marcello Rolando. My guest today is Sheila Bynum-Coleman, candidate for the House of Delegates in the 62nd District of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Welcome to The Reasonable Voices, candidate Sheila Bynum-Coleman. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. What area, maybe we should start out with that, what area is covered uh, or does the 62nd District include in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And, by the way, has it been a victim of gerrymandering? <laughs> yes, it, it, has, it is a victim of gerrymandering. Mm. And it is part of um, Prestor and Michael Hopewell and Prestor. Mm-hmm. It has actually, the, it, the way that it's cut, it really has been gerrymandered if you look at the line. Gotcha. We'll talk more about gerrymandering, too, and other things today. But I want to tell everyone a bit more about you. Sheila Bynum Coleman attended Virginia Commonwealth University, where she received her B.A. from the L. Douglas Wilder School of Government and Public Affairs with a major in political science and a minor in international studies, which makes her sound very qualified to me. Uh, (laughs) Sheila Bynum Coleman is the first African-American woman to hold a position on the Board of Contractors and the founder of R.H. Coleman Enterprises, LLC, headquartered in Chesterfield County, which operates in 15 states around the country, providing services for bank foreclosures and default properties. She has worked on many campaigns to help elect candidates she supported by organizing field teams and providing rides to the polls, which I've done, so I know how important that is, and registering voters, which is probably the most important thing we can do, second only to voting. So, what is the Board of Contractors? So, the Virginia Board of Contractors, we regulate the construction industry. So, for example, um, if if someone has an infraction or there's a complaint, Mm -hmm. our board, we, we protect the community. We make sure that contractors are 
following regulations and guidelines set by the, the state, and we also set um, rules and mandates for licensure requirements and um, education courses. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone files a complaint against the contractor, which happens often, there's a process, and then that complaint comes in front of our board, and we vote on how to deal with that, mm. that complaint. When you say you provide services, or the R.H. Coleman Enterprises provides services for bank foreclosures and default properties, can you elaborate on that for us a bit? We maintain properties that are in default. So when a property becomes delinquent, Mm -hmm. all the way through the actual foreclosure sale process, and then we maintain those properties until they're actually sold. So when a property goes into default, we make sure that um, it's cleaned out properly, the repairs are made on it, and it's marketable, and then we maintain it so that um, we don't have any eyesores in the neighborhood, basically. You know, we want to make sure that the house isn't being victimized, burglarized, and that the house is free from debris, any hazards. We make sure we do everything from replacing the roof to installing new cabinets, flooring, hmm. and um, and then we secure the property. And so there's an initial process, and then we go through um, a process of maintaining it, winterizing it, cutting the grass, and making sure that that um, property just doesn't fall by the wayside and sure. it's an eyesore. You know, you ride down the street and you have a beautiful neighborhood, and then you have an a, a empty property hmm. that <laughs> windows, you know, those type of things. So, uh, so in other words, you are protecting the property values of the neighborhood as well as the aesthetic uh, appearances. That's that's a very yeah. that's a very positive thing. Let's shift. Uh, tell us. I know uh, one of the big issues for you and for a lot of people is uh, the need for criminal justice reform. Maybe you could start with the uh, end. Uh, ending the school-to-prison pipeline. I've often mentioned that in my writing. Explain to us what that is and how uh, what we need to do to reform our justice system. Well, first I want to be clear that I, I also want to protect our community and make sure our community is safe. Uh-huh. In Chesapeake County, for example, the district is part of Chesapeake County, Henrico, Hope and Prince George. Chesapeake County is leading the nation in the number of African-American children that they're sending to law enforcement. Mm. We incarcerate more children than any than most other places um, across the, the country. Wow. And we are incarcerating children of color at a disproportionate rate. We're incarcerating more children of color for smaller fractions like... Um, um, being tardy for class, walking in the hallways, or you know, we're sending those kids to law enforcement. And my um, my concern is that when the Constitution was written, we didn't have police in the school. Mm-hmm. And when the children are going to school, the school takes the place of the parents. Mm-hmm. So the children don't have the right that they would have outside of the children. If that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. And so um, parents don't have those same rights because once the child walks into the school, the school takes the place of the child. And now we have police officers that are dealing with disciplinary issues 
when I was in school, and I'm 45 years old, when I was in school, you went to the principal's office, so they called your dad. Yes. Calling my dad was, was a fear for me. Like, yes. please don't call my dad. Yes. And, but now what we're doing is we have the police in the school that are policing our children. You know, we, we don't want children getting into fights. We don't want them walking in the class late. We don't want them being disruptive in the classroom. So do we want to send them to prison? I think there's an alternative here. We, and I think that we need to get the police out of the school. The police need to be there for safety measures to make sure that the school is safe, not to incarcerate children and deal with disciplinary actions. And that's what's taking place. So the school, the prison pipeline is one that's exploding because the police are now policing our children and um, the schools have taken a larger role in the parenting. And so they're way of dealing with discipline is sending them to law enforcement. And I've spoken to Congressman Dave Bratt about it, mm-hmm. and he was absolutely appalled. He had no idea when I spoke to him that this was the case, mm-hmm. that, that the, the school takes the place of the parent and that the police are the ones that are incarcerating our children. Like, no matter who, what legislator I have spoken to over the past year or two, and this has been a huge issue for me, no one who makes the laws is aware of the fact that the children are losing their rights when they walk into the school building because the Constitution states that the, ch- the school takes the place of the, of the parents. What? And if lawmakers don't understand it and, and aren't aware of it, how do you begin to truly stop You know, I was just, and and forgive me for interrupting you, but I was just appalled when you first said children, and I thought, well, what does she mean? But as you answered the question, uh, I remember, of course, many incidents of uh, nightly news of a police officer grabbing clearly a child in school, uh, someone under 18 years of age. So let's be clear, we are talking about children and slamming them to the ground or handcuffing even elementary school kids, uh, handcuffing their uh, elbows behind them or something. So I have to join in our lawmakers and confess that um, I'm glad you're on this show for a lot of reasons, but particularly when, when cold water is thrown in my face, whether I experienced something before, but it kind of went to the back of my mind, something like this needs to be at the foreground for all of us. So thank you. How do we, I mean, private prisons enter into this, but I, I think you you are coming at it from something that's slightly different from how I've approached it before of when I talk about the school uh, school to prison pipeline. You are making it clear that um, police have have infiltrated, I guess, maybe well-intentioned as a security measure, have infiltrated our schools, but in so doing, they have taken over the role of disciplinarian. And yeah. when a poli- when a uniformed policeman is, is the disciplinarian, you're talking about prison, possibly, jail time, uh, not, as you say, uh, calling their dad. So what do we not do? Not even to- use it in we're no longer even using in-school suspension or um, any other measures. We are we're incarcerating children. Uh, there was a young girl who was less than a hundred pounds, mm. and and I know the family. She was breaking up a fight. The police, there were several police officers in the school on that day, and they handcuffed her. And when he picked her up from the floor, from handcuffs, first of all, he was on her back. Oh, he God. had to be almost two hundred pounds. 
had his knee in her back. She kept saying, I couldn't breathe. In the recording, it said, you could hear him saying, shut up. He picked her up by the handcuffs and jerked her off of the ground. That police officer is still in the high school. That should not be allowed. And even if, she, if he thought that she was involved in the fight, his response to me was more than excessive. Yes. We've got to stop this. And then what did they do? She went to court. And, you know, she has to do community service for breaking up a fight. <laughs> and, you know, it, this is a problem. This is a concern for me. And, we, and when we talk about private prisons, we're talking, we're spending $150,000 a year to incarcerate a child. Mm. And that's just one child. Right. Uh. And, and, but we're, we're not using that money in, to provide more resources in our in our schools to yeah. provide our um, teachers with smaller classrooms, but we are spending a hundred and fifty thousand dollars per child to put them in inside our prison system. So, is your position to remove? I mean, I remember in, in my lifetime, I do remember um, that there were security guards, although we called them something else. They weren't even called security guards, but they certainly weren't uniformed police with guns, and they certainly never disciplined anyone I knew uh, uh, in school when I was in school, even when I was a teacher in school. So how, we, I guess we know we sort of, it's like the, the the frog in the simmering pot of water. We got here slowly, but here we are. How are you saying what you want to have happen uh, is to get the House of Delegates and the, and the uh, state senators in Richmond to vote to eliminate police from school or to more accurately define and limit their function in the school? I think that the police should only be there to make sure that the, 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 the school is safe and secure. They should not have any dealings with disciplinary actions inside the school. Richmond Public Schools has a security team inside the school. And what I like about what, about them when I worked in, in the school system there was that those resource officers knew the kids. They were um, very familiar with issues. Mm -hmm. they, and they also worked very hard to make sure that those children aren't being referred to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and they know the situation. They know when which kids are sleeping on, on outside because the parents don't let them in. They know the kids that are um, suffering from food shortage. They have relationships with those children. Now, the in Chester County, we have we we have police off, police officers that stand in the um, the role of resource officers. However, they're they are dealing with the disciplinary actions. What I'm saying is that we need to change the constitution. Number one, mm -hmm. because when it was written. We did not have police in the school, so we need to make some amendments because now a child walks into the school, the school takes the place of the parent, but now there's an additional law enforcement there. There's a police officer there. Mm. So when we are looking at the school-to-prison pipeline, we're, no one is talking about the role of the police officers. Now, we uh, have, I'm hugely concerned about the victims, too. The, the, because my child has been a victim. My child, who has a learning disability, has been punched, punched in the face. People have tried, kids have tried to put them in, in lockers. They've been very abusive to my to my child. Mm -hmm. I've never asked for anyone to go to prison. Not once. 
I think that we need to look at how we discipline children. We need to find the, the source, try to figure out how we can help children when children are young. If you see a child that has a violent tendency, there has to be a way that we can help that child mm-hmm. rather than put them in the prison population. Well, sending them to prison, a child, is I don't think is ever a good solution. But you, again, you certainly are uh, presenting this in a way that I think is a wake-up call to everyone because, uh, I mean, I'm very much aware of current events and whatever it's with business I'm in, but I have to say you, you have uh, delivered on this point that it just never occurred to me that the police have indeed been uh, allowed to usurp the disciplinary function of going to the principal's office. And, and one it can be appropriate, uh, you know, a measured response, but when you're dealing with a policeman, it's not that all the policemen are bad necessarily, but you're dealing with an officer of the court. You're dealing with an officer that has the power to imprison you, at least for a short period of time. And that's a very big difference from you know, seeing your school counselor or your school principal. Uh, we are talking to, and I hope you are uh, uh, being as inspired as I am to, to really think about this, a new angle on the school-to-prison pipeline involving children, I mean real children being physically assaulted by police officers. We've seen it on TV. Now candidate Sheila Bynum-Coleman is reawakening our awareness of that. We're going to be right back with her. We're going to talk more about her feelings of about education and district schools and the funding for, uh, you know, underpaid teachers, the size of school classes. We're going to touch on all of that. Please stay with us. We'll be right back with Sheila Bynum Coleman. And now, another film rental discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. It started in 1993 with pure evil. Three eight-year-old boys found hogtied and butchered in West Memphis, Arkansas. Three teenagers arrested, clearly drunk on sinister music and devil worship, exuding satanic presence. One even confessed. Kill them, cried the community. Guilty, said the police, the prosecutor, the judge. Four documentary films tell of the same horrifying events. Paradise Lost, Child Murders at Robin Hood Hills was the first. A standalone masterpiece that provides incredible insights from every side. The police, the families, the prosecutors, the judge, and the defendants. A simple story no more. Guilt settled. Truth in question. Two sequels update the story. New revelations, new questions. A miscarriage of justice? Likely. Did we need a fourth film? Absolutely. The first tells the hideous tale in real time as it unfolds. With the benefit of hindsight, West of Memphis fills in the rest of the story. The real story. Ultimately, the West Memphis Three were released after 18 years on an Alfred plea, which asserts innocence while acknowledging damning evidence. Face saving for the system and justice for none. Paradise Lost and West of Memphis. Not in theaters. Discovery through rental. Welcome back to the Reasonable Voices talk radio show. My guest today is candidate, Virginia candidate Sheila Bynum-Coleman running for the House of Delegates in the 62nd District of the Commonwealth of Virginia. I promise we are going to talk about women's rights and education, but clearly 
uh, Ms. Minam Coleman is fired up, understandably, about the way children are being treated in schools. She made a very an excellent point while we were off air, so we want to continue that particular conversation uh, now uh, for you. And the point she made was being disrespectful is not against the law. Can you say a little more about that as you were telling me, Sheila? I went to the uh, school in Tuscaloosa County. Um, a parent asked me to advocate for a child, and when when I spoke with the school resource officer, the resource officer explained to me that the child was being disrespectful. And my response was that that's not against the law. Being mm-hmm. disrespectful is not against the law. It does not cause for law enforcement to then grab you, um, harass you, push you. You, a child or per, any individual, we can respect is a choice. I can choose to respect you or I can choose not to respect you. Police also need to be trained that disrespect is not breaking the law. There's no law to say, I have to respect you. Mm. There's no law that says I have to do what you say. However, we've gotten to a place in society that when someone feels disrespected, a person of authority feels disrespectful, then now you have broken the law in their mind. And the treatment of you is, is now harsh and criminal. Oh. And in school, most, of the, most often I've seen the initial reaction is the, the school enforcement over resource officers, the child wasn't walking fast. When I told the child to walk fast, the child was disrespectful to me and told me I'm not a parent. I didn't grab the child and pulled her along to, to class to make the child move faster. That's wrong. Hmm. When do we get to a place where we understand that disrespect is not breaking the law? It's not a life sentence. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, kids have been shot because they have been disrespectful. And people say, well, what did you expect if you disrespect the police officer? I don't expect, I don't expect to lose my life. Yes. disrespect should not result in a life sentence. Okay, so let's be clear, and I'll ask you uh, rather than assume... You're not saying it's okay mm, to physically disrespect, if you will, a, an officer or to curse out an officer or, or correct me if I'm assuming too much. I'm asking. I'm not telling you. But certainly, if someone simply, where do we draw the line? Because I hear you and I agree with you. I just never, once again, you've hit me with something that I've never quite thought about in the way that you are presenting it. And that is, not respecting someone is not breaking the law. It's a choice. Um, what sort of reaction do you think the police should have in their, if, if they feel, well, if I, I hear you, I disrespecting someone. I mean, I was always taught to, as a kid, respect the police. I don't even know what that meant. I didn't, I didn't yell at them. I didn't curse them out. I didn't hit them. Well, they weren't in my school either, so there you are. Where, where do you draw the line? Where, where does, you know, help us understand? Because mo- most people listening to this might think, because I was brought up, you got to respect the police. F- fix you me. You do have to respect the police. Uh-huh. You have to abide by the law. Yes. But you choose not to respect the police, then it does not result, it should not result in physical abuse. Mm-hmm. If the police officer tells the child to walk fast, and the child chooses not to walk faster. Is walking faster slow along? Mm. Is that a rule in school? If you have to 
keep up with a certain pace in school, and if not, the police gets the right to throw you against the hall. Verbal abuse is against the law. That's a misdemeanor. Gotcha. If a child is verbally abusive to a to a teacher or a police officer, then they need to be dealt with. But that's but should we haul that child, put that child in handcuffs, and send that child to jail? I don't think so. Gotcha. If a, if if we're, we're talking about kids. Yes. Right? We're, yes. we're not talking about adults. We're talking about children. Mm-hmm. When, where is the space for us to mold children, to teach them lessons in life, to, for them, yes, they need to have consequences, but we've got to teach them lessons along the way. That's the whole purpose of them being children. Mm-hmm. We're teaching, teaching children like they are adults. If, if, there's, if there's a problem or um, if a child, and we, we all have been children. If a child has a breakup with a, a a boy and a girl and they break up and oh my gosh, that's the that is one of the most difficult times for children. Mm-hmm. And on this particular day, that child is walking slow to class or crying or wants to be excused. Now, the police officer notices the child is walking slow and she shoved her into the wall because she wouldn't move fast enough. Nothing in this particular incident that was excessive. Mm-hmm. Do I I would never I teach my children to be respectful to law enforcement also and teach it, and also to their to their peers. Yes. I don't want my children to be disrespectful, hurtful to anyone and I definitely don't want them breaking the law. But what I do know is that disrespect is not against the law. And what you're also saying and it seems to me what you're also saying too, the old cliche punishment must fit the crime. Uh, yes. how the police respond is really as much an issue. Uh, as showing respect and, and and not being verbally abusive uh, to anyone. And, and in the case that you mentioned earlier in the last segment, someone trying to break up a fight, actually getting uh, handcuffed and hauled out of school. It, it, if the police officer was not there and there was a teacher or a, a counselor or principal, vice principal, none of the things you are talking about would have taken place. Uh, a child might have been isolated or in the poli- in the principal's office for a while, sitting there, you know, longer than they wanted to be, being quiet and respectful. But they wouldn't have been handcuffed and taken to jail. And I think only because we have more that I know you want to talk about. But I think that <laughs> that makes your point. I hope we're only going to move on because we want to hear more from candidate uh, Sheila Bynum Coleman. How do we help the educational environment financially? I think we have to find innovative ways to find funding for schools. The school funding went down in 2009. Between 2008 and 2009, it never went back up. Mm. What I'm suggesting is that all government buildings, school buildings, administrative buildings, all are energy efficient and they go green. Mm. And the reason why I say that is because it will be an initial cost us to do that. However, the, the savings of what we're spending to maintain those buildings, what we would save and be able to use that to fund schools. Mm-hmm. I if see. We have, we have schools with faulty sinks that are running all day long, that are toilets. If we went to the government being more eco-friendly yes. and efficient, then we would be able to save money in our budget and we'd be able to have funding for education instead of maintenance. Does that make sense to you? It does, absolutely. We need better textbooks. We need 
better pay for teachers and uh and we need more uh, if you can't have one-on-one time i understand that in the public school situation but you the classroom needs to be a more reasonable size so that you can give students uh as much attention as possible and and you're right if we weren't I mean, just the point you made is an excellent one. If the plumbing weren't leaking, you know, uh, and running up the water bill for the school, then we'd have a, we'd have money to do things like right. that. You're talking to teachers in a classroom with uh, over 25 kids. Yes. Out of 25 kids, we have 25 kids, 25 different personalities, 25 different situations, 25 personal issues outside of the home. Right? Yes. And maybe 18 have some type of learning disability or individual education plan. And the t- one teacher has to accommodate the needs of all of these kids in one class. Yes. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And then, on top of that, and then we're going to give SLR testing and ask the teacher to be responsible for you're saying when i grab a quick snack i go to a fast food place the cost is four dollars and something i will give them a twenty dollar bill say and the exact change in coin and they look at me because they don't know what to do with that and i very patiently i made it a little mission explain to them how to make change in that way and you know it's not the kid's fault i never feel that I think, as you say, we're not preparing them for the real world. Let's jump, and just so we know we've covered as much as we can with the time allowed, 
women's rights. Okay, there you are, a woman of color running for public office. You ought to be able to tell us, as you have with everything so far today, you ought to be able to give us a, a tremendous POV about women's rights. Teach us. So, first of all, I'm the first black woman to run in a district that's majority Republican. And every black person that has been elected to the General Assembly is in a minority majority district. Mm. So, being a woman is difficult in this politically, business wise. Yes. And being a black woman is even more difficult yes. in, in this world. And when our state legislators refused to acknowledge women in the Constitution and they refused to pass the ERA mm. amendment, we have a problem. The Constitution was not written for people of color, for black people, nor was it written for women. When do we get to a place where we're going to wake up and say women's rights matter, women are a part of this state, women are a part of this country, we are providers, we give, we are part of the economy, and yet still we're not being acknowledged mm. in our constitution. Mm-hmm. And we had a group of women that are working on the ERA, it's a group called Women's Matter, they met with my opponent. I went with them, I, I arranged the meeting, and he still refused to vote yes on the ERA amendment. Mm. And this is this is a sad, it, it's, a, it's very sad and it's unfortunate that in 2017 that as women, we're still fighting for our rights. Yes. As a black woman, I'm still fighting for, for our rights. We're fighting for equality and justice for all. Mm. And this is 2017. When do we change? When does it change? Exactly. Because the legislator is made up of predominantly men, white men. Mm-hmm. And so when, and because the districts are drawn for them, they don't feel compelled to have to really listen to the people, listen to the citizens and the voters. They get to do whatever they want to do because they're in safe seat. I was told over and over again not to run for this seat. I'm challenging someone who's been in office for over a quarter of a century. Wow. He's been unopposed since 1995. I'm the first person to challenge him, and I was told over and over again not to run against him because this district was wrong for him. That is absurd. We've got to make a fair redistricting completed, yes. and we've got to acknowledge women. We've got to acknowledge people. <laughs> we've mm. got to, we cannot continue to say women are not valued. Mm. And, and that's what you're saying when you refuse to pass the ERA amendment. Yes. Women be clearly stated in the Constitution. Okay. So, this, uh, well, no, this, <laughs> you, you a lot. oh, no, no, your passion is most appreciated because it has focus on specifics, and that's what we need, and all of the issues you've spoken to need to be addressed, and you are certainly sounding like the person who is going to do everything she can to get them addressed by the uh, legislature in Richmond, Virginia. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And my old friend at uh, Brian Cannon at One Virginia 2021, you and he need to connect because it sounds like the first thing we need to fix in order to fix everything else is gerrymandering. We need redistricting reform, as you said, because the, the districts are being gerrymandered uh, to favor the incumbent 
And when you've got an incumbent, uh, you know, a bunch of old guys have been around a quarter of a century and not making room, and by room I mean justice for all, not making opportunity, equal opportunity or equal employment without gender bias or racial bias, then I think we do need to, we need to reform how these districts are drawn in Virginia and in the country. What are your thoughts? We're running out of time, but tell me, what are your thoughts about that? I believe wholeheartedly that we need to have fair seats. No one should feel that a district is drawn just for them. Mm -hmm. That is the most absolute craziest thing that I've ever heard of. The purpose for having 100 seats is to represent the people. Yes. And, all, and, and I believe in a government for the people, by the people. But that's not what our government has turned into. It's a government for the 1%. It's mm-hmm. a government for the people who want to have, who want to be in office. And so we're going to draw seats to make sure they stay in office. Mm-hmm. But how does that help you? How does that help me? Mm-hmm. How does that help the man down the street? When you have someone who's in a safe seat that has been there for years, not just my town, my, mm-hmm. my, the person that I'm challenging, but there are other people that have been there for 15, 20 years, mm-hmm. and, and they're not representing the people. The General Assembly, the body, the governing body, doesn't even look like the people of Virginia. Mm-hmm. It's not even representative of the diverse state that we live in. And we have a, 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 a governing body with a lot of lawyers, stop you there, but it has been an exceptional uh, interview. And and Sheila Bynum Coleman, candidate for the House of Delegates in the 62nd District of the Commonwealth of Virginia, has been my guest. She is on target. She is passionate about compassion and justice for all. We thank you so very much, Sheila Bynum Coleman, for being on The Reasonable Voices today, and we wish you and all dear to you the very highest and best. Thank you so much. All the best now. And thank you for having me. My pleasure. Bye now. Stay with us as we'll be right back with a final comment from The Reasonable Voice. Discovery. Welcome to the Indie Film Minute. Only Lovers Left Alive is not really a vampire movie because there's no shock, no horror. According to Jim Jaramouche, the film's writer and director, and a granddaddy in the indie world, it's a love story and character study. It is, but it's also a film with a luscious look and feel, full of subtle detail and nuanced social commentary. Jaramouche clearly has a jaundiced view of the current state of humanity. 
he sets his film in decadent Tangiers and also in modern Detroit, where decay suits the mood of a very tired vamp. Humans are called zombies by the vampire elite, but it's dangerous to feed on them because so much corruption has tarnished their blood. Pure blood procured for cash from corrupt medical techs is treasured for its sensual delights. Surprisingly, Only Lovers Left Alive is an intellectual exercise suffused in a sensual world. It's a personal observation by one who sees beauty in the margins, appreciates intellectual humor, and yearns to share the pain inflicted upon the esthete. No, this is not a driving vampire tale, but luscious vampire commentary. Only Lovers Left Alive, not in theaters, Discovery through rental. Hello, I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, thanking you for joining us in becoming one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. For whom the bell tolls, the day after Las Vegas. Whether propagating the self-deception of a reality show society, or willfully picking up the gauntlet with which gun violence has targeted reason, let freedom ring in favor of our right to agree to disagree without NRA tools of mass destruction. Rethink in God we trust fear and faith on the backs of our green, our tired, and our poor, failing to see our fragile lifeline to there but for the grace, Sandy Hook, again. A near-death experience can magnify our enlightenment or regurgitate casting our sand lot against people who look too tanned for comfort with lifestyle choices unbecoming our inclusion, or swing away like guardians putting themselves in harm's way for those striking out at bat but still rounding their gerrymandered bases. We could snatch from the bowels of the lies we tell ourselves about gender equality a more creative and collaborative boost to minimum wage, teacher salaries, and American ingenuity, committing ourselves to a real America First focused revival that reinvigorates construction and manufacturing careers. Whatever our heritage, homage, or hue, ultimately we are the solution to moral bankruptcy, political perjury, conservative prejudice, human extinction, and the atmosphere we've created in the name of prosperity astride a foundation of poverty. The American dream is not sleepwalking through nightmares of knocking down the doors of those who trusted our, now frigid, Statue of Liberty promises with ice-picked madness, oppression and death by automatic sniper fire camouflaged as constitutional. We can choose to be passionate in our compassion or ruthless in our rallies. Tis the season for catastrophic change. Twitter and Facebook admitting, like Bank of America and Wells Fargo, they are American in name only. Domestic terrorism in Las Vegas. And the ship sinking the United in the United States of America, ignoring brown people left behind by Hurricane Maria and Swamp Thing's fake news tweets. Sometimes all it takes to be good neighbors is replacing the power of 140 characters with the art of silence, meditating, perhaps, on what would be our response to being labeled card-carrying members of the Axes of Evil, or, for that matter, the Land of the Hacked. We can stand up for Standing Rock, 
Stand with San Juan's mayor, Carmen Cruz, and stand tall for justice by bending a knee and exposing the soulless, promoting tax reform as miracle for the middle class and not good for me. Thoughts and prayers language can be the veil giving cover for both puppeteers and puppets, masking our massive self-deluding addiction to opioids and guns, bequeathing children streets littered with plastic, styrofoam, and dreams of violence. Maybe hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, drought, and raging forest fires are unavoidable cycles. But our breaking treaties with Native Americans, internment of Japanese Americans, shooting unarmed people resembling Henrietta Lacks, and being too war-intensive, invading Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and Iraq, is more an eclipse. We can ignore Dulles Brothers' legacy to Koch Brothers and languish in a shroud of mystery and conspiracy theories while assassination truth is denied by a president who, at 71, needed help to discover the political cover of optics as hurricane response excuse. But Las Vegas reminds us the next moment has never been promised. So we can live with grace, generosity, and gratitude, or clone ourselves a politically motivated 21st century Nero, fiddling away our exceptionalism. Indeed, everything has its season, and time yields to life-changing events, but if we fail to seize the day from irrational leaders, boomlets like millennials before them will only inherit the winds of perpetual war and domestic violence before abrupt climate change can educate global warming deniers. Believing thumbed digital phrases while walking is conversing, we are self-disconnecting from human communication. Losing the art of listening to our inner voice of reason, we divorce humane communion. Until we exude tolerance for those with whom we disagree, we risk acts of pure evil and deny ourselves all-inclusive vision. Shooters, isolationists, originalists, fascists, and supremacists prevail only when we desert the potential of a loving human chain of diversity, waiting for permission to share. Because little produced by humankind is ever at its best when unilateral, first launched, or whitewashed. Thank you, and join us. Become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world. Thank you for continuing to listen to, support, and share the Reasonable Voice Blog Talk Radio with family and friends, especially online. We enjoy hearing from you, and in response, yes, we are now accepting new company and business advertisers and welcoming organizations seeking to be one of our sponsors. So please do continue to email us at thereasonablevoice at gmail.com. However, if you prefer to simply make a donation, your donations are greatly appreciated and can be made through PayPal by clicking on the donate button found at the top of the homepage of the Reasonable Voice. Com website. Thank you for joining us today to make every day as reasonable as possible. We hope you will download and share our downloadable podcasts. I'm Marcello Rolando, the Reasonable Voice, hoping you will become one of the reasonable voices heard round the world.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC. 